listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we are so thrilled to welcome Janice Lee to read from her new book, Imagine a Death. And after that, she will be in conversation with Gabrielle Seville, who will also be reading from her new book, Ghost Gestures. Before I introduce them and they read a little something for us, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Dot com. First up, we are going to have Janice Lee read a little something for us. Janice Lee is a Korean-American writer, editor, publisher, and shamanic healer. She's the author of seven books of fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry. Most recently, The Sky Isn't Blue, Imagine a Death, and Separation Anxiety. She writes about interspecies communication, plants, and personhood, the filmic long take, slowness, the apocalypse, architectural spaces, inherited trauma, and the concept of Han in Korean culture, and ask the question, how do we hold space open while maintaining intimacy? She is founder and executive editor of Entropy and co-founder of the Accomplices LLC. She currently lives in Portland, Oregon, where she is an assistant professor of creative writing at Portland State University. Hi, Janice. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so happy to be here with Gabrielle also. Um, so I'm gonna just read uh, two very short bits from this novel, Imagine a Death, which is um, out very soon from Texas Review Press. Um, and these are two very short chapters. So this first one is called The Dream. In a dream, there is a small huddled crowd of people their faces bright from the encroaching lava that is slowly crawling towards them from all sides. They are surrounded and it is obvious to all of the individuals that there is no escape from the fiery death. So they do not ask how it is that they got here and they do not ask what they might do now to save themselves. Rather, in these final moments together, they crowd closer together not to give themselves an extra breath or two, though naturally that also, but to actually get closer together. That in these moments before death, they want to leave in the intimacy of each other, whether strangers or family or friends, they want to feel what it is to be loved and to be in the entanglements of intimacy with other bodies, the warmth of limbs, the prayers received from others, the tears of terror that transform into tears of generosity and gratitude, and they all grasp at each other, trying to feel each other's bodies, each other's hands, just each other. 
And as the lava creeps further and further, they can feel the heat from the steam. The skin on their faces starts to boil. Those on the outer perimeter start to scream as their outer layers burn away and their feet simply disintegrate into the mass of lava, the intense heat for just a blink of existence, reminding them of what it means to feel anything in life and to feel anything in death, both the joy and all of the pain. All of those human feelings as a giant and intense mass before they are obliterated and relieved of their burdens forever. And um, this other short vignette is called The Dog and it's in the point of view of the dog. There is the veering in my nostrils. It's a season of death and resurrection, but what season isn't? She veers, is veering, but if she misses anybody, it is the ghost that becomes an intimate confidence. I wish she could understand how gracefully we can slide into the images of dirt here, that the mountains speak, but she cannot hear them. We are all veering constantly, and to be alone doesn't mean to be doesn't mean to be dejected, but still with each other. She lives by mirages, but realizing that the mirages and the everything else are becoming each other constantly, and that her reflection is constantly becoming her, just as she is constantly becoming her reflection. There are certain things I have become accustomed to. I don't know why I bite. I don't miss anybody because I don't know how, but I know what I am attached to, and that is everything. Whoever said it was easy to understand their real self? A dog, probably, but at least this is a wonderful place to be unhappy in. Thank you so much, Janice. And now we are going to hear from Gabrielle Seville. Gabrielle Seville is a Black feminist performance artist, poet, and writer, originally from Detroit, Michigan. She has premiered over 50 original performances around the world, most recently Jupiter via the Velocity Dance Center in Seattle and Vigil via the Northern Spark Festival. Her performance memoirs include Swallow the Fish, Experiments in Joy, Ghost Gestures, and The Deja Vu. Her writing has also appeared in Kitchen Table Translation, New Daughters of Africa, and Experiments in Joy, a workbook. A 2019 Rima Hortman LA Emerging Artist, she teaches in the MFA program in Creative Writing at the California Institute of the Arts. The aim of her work is to open up space. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here, especially to have a chance to share in the celebration of my dear friend Janice Lee's new book. I'm going to be reading from my new book, Ghost Gestures, and um, let's go. I'm in Montreal at the start of a year of travel. I'm in Montreal writing about performance, identity, and the body. It's the second week of September, and I am in Montreal thinking about memory and location. What is in the world? Where do I want to be? I'm walking in the world as a black woman traveler. I'm looking for my Haitian people, exiles like my father, the doctors and teachers and engineers who made good in this new world. The ones who survived the chilly racism of the great white North, the pure race politics of the liberation front, the ones who made it 
and survived. I'm looking for a particular Haitian woman poet. The scuttlebutt in New York says she is here. I encounter absence, strange traces, ghosts. I walk through the city, explore and navigate public space. I sit at a fountain. I'm the only black woman around. A drunk white man comes up and hassles me. He won't leave me alone, so I leave. The next day, I go and sit in a public square. There's one other black woman there across the park. A white man approaches and starts to talk to me. He wants to pick me up, but seems strung out or crazy. I look around. Other women are there. Both times the men came up to me. I want to feel my body in Montreal. I want to be fully incited as I experience the city. The experiences with these men in public places are other experiences of body. They are not pleasant experiences, but they aren't unfamiliar either. They are the wages of a global hip hop city, a place where ciphers of black women displace the city's imagination. Those men mistake me for that other woman, the projection of their desire, their desire scrawled over everything. Ghost, gesture, the ghost speaks. How to return if you've never been, poetry and phantasm, body x-ray, apparition, ghost. Gesture, will I be white? Will I be transparent? Will I eat fish or just the bones? Will I be able to walk through walls? Will I be able to see through walls? Will you be able to see me? Will you be able to touch me? Will you know me then? The sheet of the boat slips away. Do you know me now? Have you seen the spirits? Are they here? She waves a piece of her ghost dress in the air. So that's a little bit of that. So Janice, I mean, one of the things I feel like both of our books have in common is just this interest in ghosts or possibilities of afterlives. I mean, what does that mean for you? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that as you were reading when you said the ghost speaks and I was like, well, what does the ghost say? Right. And I think we're both interested on all of the vantage points around the ghost, right? Both the ghost, who's seeing the ghost, who's being haunted by the ghost, how was the ghost created, who created the ghost. There's so many different vantage points embedded in just the word ghost for me. And um, for me, that's something that I'm thinking about, right? The creation of a ghost is about the conjuring of a past or a trauma or a wounding or an experience. And so the ghost interests me as much as the person who is being haunted by the ghost, right? Because there's something that's, that tether there is really interesting to me that that's, that's actually where um, the ghost is there for a reason, right? Um, and so I'm really interested in that. And what is the difference between ghosts and ancestors? What is the difference between ghosts and self? Um, and so I'm curious to hear, you know, the ghost speaks, but what does the ghost say? And then also, can we even understand 
I mean, we we can register we can register that the ghost is speaking, but do we need to ourselves become ghosts to to know that language? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the language of the ghost? And I mean, one of the things I know in ghost gestures that is really fun for me is the way that I'm able to play with language and different kinds of languages. There's Spanish in this book. There's um, definitely sort of gestures towards Haitian Creole. There's French. And thinking about how ghosts and what recurs, what continues to arrive, especially how then that could intersect with ancestors and recognizing that our ancestors maybe don't speak the same languages that we do. Even when they were alive, they didn't. So how do we navigate that? Yeah. Um, I love what you said about the tether because I think a lot about the role of the artist in recognizing the tether, negotiating the tether. And I mean, two of the main characters, well, see, okay, I would say you've got a photographer and a writer as main characters in your book, but there are, there are incredible passages around birds in your book. And I would say that they are also artists yeah. or that they're, that they're artists that are beyond just sort of the, the, the human animal characters in the books. And I'm just curious about, kind of what does art making mean for you in terms of, let's say, tending or recognizing that tether between the ghost and the body, the ghost in the world? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, at its core, at least, the desire around making art or wanting to be an artist is really the desire to express a self. And that is a desire that I think anyone can have, whether you're called an artist or you call yourself a writer, artist, photographer, or whatever, um, which is why the birds are artists, right? Because they are expressing themselves um, or any of the other animals or moss or um, what have you. And, um, you know, I think about what is at stake in expressing the self, right? And I think about your book in terms of bodies and how bodies are seen and what is at stake if you're in a certain body in a certain public space, right? Um, and how one is seen. And so to me, art making, especially as a woman of color, right, is really linked to self, which is linked to body, which is linked to how others see you, right? And so you have to negotiate relationship with how others see you or how you perceive others to see you and how you see yourself, which may or may not be the same. Right. And so in those relationships, the ghosts often get created because then that brings up everything, <laughs> history, you know, all, all of that. Um, yeah. Think about how embodied your book is. It's interesting because, of course, traditionally, a ghost is formed at the time of death. And the title of your book is Imagine a Death. And so it's almost like when we imagine that, okay, well then what, who, who's there? Like, what are we imagining that that death is building into? And also what is the body of the ghost? I mean, we think about, again, traditionally ghosts as being immaterial, but that immateriality can be corporeal. I mean, that can be embodied. And in your book, there's so much about the embodiment of grief so much about, and I love, I mean, there's hand washing and I mean, there's so many moments where it feels to me like your beautiful, long, precise descriptions of, of physical action, you're really paying attention to how people embody grief. And it makes me, I mean, I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, is this a kind of absorption or coexistence of 
the ghost and the person is grief a process in which people become ghosts mm -hmm. even for like a temporary way or there's a there's all these really interesting permutations and transformations and there's kind of like afterlives and early deaths i guess i mean so that some people are, are living death and are having to think about or find ways to to live i mean there's a passage in your book it's not one that you just read but i was rereading and it's really amazing about like there's so much about the pain of life but also or even in what you read the solidarity of like in that moment right before immolation what do people want to do they want to be together they want to feel their bodies together so i'm just thinking i mean i'm curious to know maybe about death and how does that figure into your imagination in general and and of course specifically in this book yeah, I mean, one thing that immediately pops into my head as I hear you talk is one of the things, you know, there's so much grief, there's so much loss in the book, there's so much grief and there's so much loss in the world right now. And as I was writing this, and since then, I've been dealing with a lot of grief and loss. Um, but one of the reminders that I constantly go back to is that death is not the opposite of life, right? Death is the opposite of birth. It's an event, right? And that it's part of life actually. And so I have to remind myself to be grateful for death and the grief and the loss and the clarity that loss can bring, right? That it's not actually something that's feared or to be a feared or unnatural. Um, and so as I hear you talk about like the actions that some of my characters have, for me, I think about a lot of those actions as like reaching towards something and they don't always know what they're reaching towards, right? There's a character that's literally a pea plant that is always reaching and sometimes the human like guides the tendrils, right? As we do in our garden. Um, and, and I wanna ask you actually about the title of your book, right? Cause I was thinking about ghost gestures so much, right? These are not ghost actions or not ghost movements. And there's so much embedded in the word gesture. Mm -hmm. because it's, it's kind of a movement, but it's like a hint towards an action. It's not quite the same. And the way that it's embedded in these parentheses, right? Has this kind of, there's an expression but it's an expression of a lack of expression, right? It's also hinting at like, instead of just being this, there's there's a hint, right? So the title itself seems to be enacting ghostness. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Oh, I love that idea of the title enacting ghostness because that's definitely something that I was thinking about. I mean, tradition, I mean, I can't always pull it off, but in my heart, there's, I mean, ghost gestures is in parentheses, but, but the way I write it, it's like open parentheses space ghost gestures, space, close parentheses. And there's a kind of spectrality that's meant even in terms of the, the vision of the title. I also think it's true that a gesture is somewhere between existence or being an action. It's not full action yet, but there is some stirring. There's some, there's some kind of movement. And you know, the pea plant, that tendril, there's a kind of gesture, there's a lean as it moves towards the sun, you know, there's something in a gesture that, um, for me is about the animate, but also how things, if we, if there's a, if there has been made a binary between animate and inanimate. So that's where like, I mean, in my book, there's a whole section about a doll, for example, and the, and that a doll sort of comes to life and is, and it's manifesting the, the, the all of these different kinds of stereotypes or ideas of the past you know the mammy doll the maid um topsy eva etc 
And just thinking about what is the gesture that exists to make something like that come to life. That's interesting to me. Gestures also, that's a really performative word. And that's a word for me, a gesture can be in theater, a gesture happens in dance, the gesture happens, you know, so it doesn't even have to be verbal, but there's something very performative. And the parentheses then also echo stage directions. And so it really allows people to recognize this as a performance text, even though, I mean, some of it reads as straight up poetry, some of it reads as straight up sort of travelogue. And I mean, I think one of the things that I'm excited about with this particular book and what I even read in the section is like, how often do you read about black women traveling anywhere? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, a black woman in Montreal, a black woman in Dakar, you know, a black woman in Mexico, a black woman in Puerto Rico, wherever, you know, that was something that I felt like I, I was excited to be able to offer and to think about performances of identity, performances of self, creative artistic performances, but also performances of movement and travel. And that those kinds of performances and movement and travel were also ghost gestures, sort of echoing the various migrations and immigrations forced and otherwise, you know, that that have happened. And so that was something exciting for me. Yeah. I want Oh, I want to ask you about landscape because, you know, here, me, it was, it's very geographical. Like the opening of my book is in, is in Dakar and then, you know, we just read Montreal, whatever. But landscape, even though it's not as geographically diverse, I feel like your book is really interested in spatial relationships and even in like the land, mm-hmm. the, earth, the land and landscape. And so I'm curious if, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been interested in space and landscape. My last book was The Poetics of Spaces, right? And so I'm, I'm constantly just thinking about what does it mean to be in a space and relationship with the space and everything in that space. Um, and this book in particular, you know, I wrote the first half of it while I was living in Los Angeles and then the second half when I was uh, living in Portland. And so there's something about the change of landscape for me that also there's an echoing in the book, right? Because so much of what, is around me was influencing what was in the book, right? So the landscapes of this kind of anonymous desert city really is echoing kind of, you know, the fires and what's happening, what was happening in LA at the time, but are still happening, right? Um, and so I just think about, you know, how how do bodies react differently when we're in different spaces and landscapes, right? And how do we adapt and kind of learn to listen or see differently? And that's something I think that's already embedded in us. It's an intuition and knowing that we have, whether or not we know how to articulate it. Um, I think so much about you know what we would normally call like empty space, right? Like we have space, and I'm and I'm thinking, you know, back to your the parentheses and that space that's in between, right? They're not normal parentheses. That space for me is not empty space, right? And the white space of your book, right? There's a lot of white space is not empty space because so much about your book is about distances traversed, right? And so that connective tissue, even though we're not necessarily in these moments, like we don't linger in the moment of traveling, right? We travel and then we get to another point, right? But that is the connective tissue that makes it possible, right? And so I think about that space as actually being so important in order for everything else to exist. The bodies don't exist without the spaces in between the bodies because that is the air and the climate in which we are in. And that's, you know, something I'm thinking about in my book is climate, Um, not necessarily just in relation to climate change, but 
climate as the environment that we are all embedded and entangled in, right? It's what connects us. Yeah, I love the way that climate in your book is um, atmospheric. It's weather, it's environment, environmental, but it's also um, dispositional. I feel like there's something, I mean, even in the very early on in this book, and no spoilers, readers, you have to read it yourself, but there's something that happens early on where characters are just looking at cracks in a wall or they're looking at a, at a space that is deteriorating. And that kind of deterioration is, is a part of it. I mean, I think what is so exciting to me about, I mean, I love your work anyway, but what's exciting to me about this particular book is that there's an assurance and you take your time and you allow for these sentences to be really precise and really to build a world. So even when I think about landscape, there's something also about the, the landscape as architecture of, of language. And that was something even in your introduction that was mentioned, you're interested in certain, certain kinds of architectures and how kind of material architectures and then artistic architectures come together. So I wanna ask maybe like a nerdy craft question from it here because you have written you know, nonfiction, you're known for nonfiction as well as your novels. If I'm not mistaken, there's some there's a book of poems that's going to be cooking not too long. But I'm just I would love for you to talk a little bit about the novel as a form and what it means to you, and especially to write what I think I've heard you refer to as a decolonial novel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so in some ways, I've written novels before, or I have written books that have been labeled as novels, right? Which I think uh -huh. is important to acknowledge. Um, because my my past works have been a lot more experimental and fragmentary and when you flip through them they immediately don't necessarily look like novels whereas if you flip through imagine the desk it resembles a novel in its structure there are chapters there are sentences right um, whereas my previous works did not um, but what i'm thinking about with this book i think in particular not just with novel as a form um though that too right i'm really resisting the plot structure of having to be having there having to be resolution or redemption i'm also really resisting expectations around plot or character development right that a character needs to improve um because i don't necessarily believe that characters or people change right what i do believe is that people learn more about themselves and their circumstances of how they are in the world which can be described as a change but they're not changing at the core right they're um dealing with their trauma they're dealing with their wounds they're figuring out the relationships with their parents or whatever um and that is a belief that i have and it's not necessarily characters changing and so that's kind of reflected in the overall narrative structure but I'm also really interested in the sentence as the colonial form, right? The sentence I think has a lot of kind of colonial structure built into it that we often take for granted, especially in English and especially in American English where we often privilege short, concise sentences, right? We have subjects acting upon objects, right? There is even a differentiation between subject and object, right? There's all of these things that are built into the grammar that we take for granted as that being a reflection of the world, but it isn't, right? The way that we use language and structure it is not necessarily how the world is, but those are the structures that we use to describe things. And so that was something I was thinking a lot about is how can I expand from within the sentence 
and not have it um, necessarily be in the containers that to me feel really limiting, at least for this book that's dealing with a lot of trauma and excess, right? Um, I use parentheses, but I use them very differently, right? There are all these tangents inside of sentences. So parentheticals become really important for me. Um, yeah, and, 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 I, and I mean, I wanna ask, you because you know you're a performance artist you're also a poet but you also write nonfiction, right and so i'm curious because you know when i move between modes right i know there's i don't always know what i'm doing right when i make these decisions and i'm curious you know as to how you make decisions or are you making decisions around you know when something is going to look like a poem or look like a block of prose and how that might be related especially to how you envision readers seeing it or listening to it or watching it performed right I think so much about um how performative your work is even when it's on the page and in ghost gestures you know what really struck me is how much looking there is mm -hmm. there's so much looking the narrator's looking the narrator's being looked at i think there's a section where it says like i was looking and it's repeated over and over right and so you know how do you how do you how, what is that relationship with the reader looking and you looking as the narrator um but the narrator is not necessarily you, the author, right? There's right. also different layers in the eye. It's a complex question. <laughs> well, I love this question so much because it actually deeply connects to what you were just talking about. And I feel like I've been taking notes because just the idea of the sentence as a colonial form. Okay, I'm gonna bring that into my classroom because I, I just think there are so many ideas around efficiency and power and acting upon. And what I think, in your work you're doing with capacious sentences is, is infusing um, English sentences with interiority or trying to reclaim a certain kind of interiority or trying to explore or mine or, or in investigate a kind of interiority for your characters and that you're making that happen on the level of the sentence. And I think similarly for me in this particular book, I'm really grappling with exteriors for a lot of this book. <laughs> I'm really grappling with, wow, why is there a black exploitation soul diva mural on in Montreal? Like, what is that doing there? Or, you know, I'm in, I'm in Dakar and I'm so excited to be here, but then here's a person saying to me like, oh, well, we look the same, which is like such a gift to be in a country where people look like you, all the majority of the people. But that exterior thing, like, well, because we look the same, then we are the same, but it's like, but. I wish that were true, but it's not, you know? And there's a kind of trajectory in the book when we do encounter the ghost or when the real, like the actual ghost and the ghost gesture arrives, you notice there's a lot of questions there. And it feels as if it's an attempt to get into, to arrive at a kind of exterior, an interiority that's been denied. In terms of formally how that plays out for me, there's so much intuition there. Um, I just have gone through a really intense copy editing process. And I mean, I love copy editors. I feel like they're trying to be a hedge against like oblivion. But I also, I'm, I, I think that I, they don't like me probably because I'm like, no, it has to be this. It has to be this. And if I try to explain why, it's like just intuitively, it's something about breath. It's about the way, it, the way I feel like the language breathes on the page. It's what you said in terms of space on the page, often, especially for this book, about spectrality, about everything else. I just feel like um, really 
when I'm thinking about what, what a piece should look like on the page, often I'll start with one idea and then the work will tell me. Um, and I'm, I feel lucky that people have followed me <laughs> in that and that the work is often called different things by different people. Sometimes people think it's a poem. Sometimes people think that it's an essay, sometimes, you know, and I'll say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It can be more than one thing at the same time. And I'm making those decisions often just based on the rhythms, the internal rhythms of the piece. And does it, you know, do you, does it matter to you what things are called, right? And I ask this, so for example, like I had a student who's writing poetry with line breaks and then decided to take away all the line breaks and they worked perfectly fine, he thought as, as prose poems, right? And so, and, and I think that makes sense, right? But I think that there is something about, well, how do you want it to be seen and how do you want it to be read, right? So is there anything at stake for you in something being called a poem or an essay, or a performance document, or a, a hybrid of those, or or none of the above, or right, like what is at stake um, operating both internally and externally of these labels? Oh, that's a great question because I feel like a lot is at stake. I mean, a lot of it is because I'm social and I want to be in all these different communities. And I want to be in all these different rooms, and I feel such a strong identity as a poet. But then my books are not called poetry, except that maybe they are big giant poems, except that I was hired to teach nonfiction at my school and I love nonfiction. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a nonfiction. You know, it's, <laughs> it's sort of what are the community, what are the communities that you want to be in? What are the conversations you want to have? And I think the other big stake is around what are the lenses that you want your readers to bring to the work that they're reading? Because I will say that expectation, a lot of those genre labels set up expectations for readers. And I do think that that's where even the, the term for me that's been the most helpful is performance memoir, because there's something autobiographical, but that word performance sort of lets people know this is not going to be the traditional kind of memoir necessarily where it's narrative and you just start with one day and then it goes through one whole year. I just think it gives people, there's some space in the word memoir that I love, but that word performance really helps me. And that under the umbrella of performance memoir, performance memoir is poetry, it's nonfiction, um, it's, it's hybrid. Or the thing that I think was interesting in your example, when a student takes the line breaks out and then has these prose poems, for me, then that sequence becomes a lyric essay. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so part of it is there's, yeah, I don't know. I know Madhu Kaza, whom you also know, who's a wonderful writer. She talks about fiction and not and nonfiction as not being very helpful categories. She talks about prose, like writing prose and maybe writing poetry. But even that category gets kind of can get quite blurry. So it's really writing, yeah, um, and embodied writing. Yeah, I mean, one person who for me really helped me a lot to deal with that because I think early on, I was writing a lot of stuff that really did resemble both poetry and fiction. And I was kind of having this identity crisis, right? 
Um, and I wanted, my desire was to just be like, I am just a writer and I'm not going to pick a genre, right? But of course you have to pick a genre for marketing and for all of that. Um, but then I heard, um, I think a couple of years ago, I heard Renee Gladman talk. And Renee Gladman is someone who writes, you know, she writes fiction, prose, right? But a lot of it is very poetic. She also writes in other genres and makes, you know, beautiful art and drawings. Um, but a student asked her this question, like, you know, what do you think about genre? And the answer was, well, she actually has a lot of stake in calling her work fiction because it's about the expectations, right? If a reader has the expectation this is fiction, they are going to read it within or in response to the canon of what they perceive to be fiction, right? And that was really important. For me, that really changed how I saw it. And I thought, you know what, that is actually what I am interested in also, right? And so there is something at stake in these labels. I mean, Matthew Celestes also has this book recently, um, Craft in the Real World, where he talks about craft as being a set of expectations, right? And so, and this includes definitions of genre. And so I do really think about, you know, what is at stake in calling something a novel? Well, I mean, it gets to be marketed as a novel, sure. But what for me is more interesting is that the expectations that someone brings to it in terms of what they perceive to be a novel and how might this either be aligned with what their expectations are or change their expectations or tweak them or undermine them, right? Or expand them. Um, and that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I love that. I think that too, that helps in the decolonial project because it helps to really confront what some of the expectations have been around different forms. Um, I know Ocean Vuong talked about wanting to disrupt the notion of conflict, which I think is also something operating very profoundly and beautifully in your book. What is it to put things next to or be in proximity or, um, I think that that kind of work and that definitely resonates with what I do and that I'm really interested in juxtaposition. I'm really interested in layering. I'm interested in palimpsest. I'm interested in sequence, maybe more than conflict. Um, or that that very like rising action, climate falling action. I mean, it's just it's all everything's moving yeah. all the time. There's all, there's that kind of movement, and then the stillness comes through the whiteness on the page, or the or the the openness on the page. So I love that. So I have a question here for you because I know what is your official launch day for this book? Uh, September fifteenth. Okay, so that's coming up soon. And so there's gonna be various kinds of celebrations. But someone just asked me this. Um, they said like, if your book, or let's say your book launch party had a signature drink, what would, it, what would the drink be for Imagine a Death? Oh my God, I have no idea. Um, I, this is not even an answer to your question, but what popped into my head for some reason was, I don't know if you've seen Always Be My Maybe, of course I have seen that. The restaurant that they go to with Keanu Reeves and the crazy things they serve that has like essence of something and this thing is from the cloud. I can't even remember, but like that's actually what I popped into my head is like something that's really impossible to make and to actually consume, <laughs> but it's yeah. somehow driven. It's like, it's like being derived from the climate, right? <laughs> I love that you just mentioned that first of all, because People might not know this, but I love Keanu. So that's one thing. Yes. But also in that film, I'm sorry, this might be a spoiler, but everybody, you need to know this. It's really amazing because it is sort of like, we have taken the life of this deer and 
you know, prepared it and then Keanu weeps and then eats it. You know what I mean? It's just like something about nature. There's the headphones, right? Because you can hear the sound, (laughs) which is really great. But because there is something around also being in process, cycling through, being with nature, being in atmosphere. And I mean, I think there's a lot, there's grief and, and death in your book, but there's also so much beauty. I mean, this is not in opposition because grief and death are not in opposition to beauty, which is part of what your book is all about. But for people who haven't read it, I really do want to say that, that there's, there's so much gorgeousness in the writing and also just in the scenes and the landscapes of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking for ghost gestures, we'd have to have some like rum barbancourt thing, some Haitian rum with like a ch- chaser of mezcal or like a flight of like African cane, beautiful like Senegalese spirits. And then like mezcal from, from what we now call Mexico. And then of course we have to have like some rum. I feel like it's good to end on the spirits, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see, so I know we only have a few moments left. Um, can I ask one last question? Yeah, go for it. Um, so I, this is something I struggle with is endings and your book ends with and returns, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a spoiler, but it ends with returns. And I just love that because it also has the same parentheses of the title. And so we're not returning to ghost gestures, but we're returning to the gesture of ghost gestures. And so I just would love to hear you talk just a little bit about like how you make decisions about where and how you end books. <laughs> oh man, endings are so tricky, aren't they? They're so hard. And I think for me, it has to feel good in your mouth. Like when you're reading the whole book aloud, which you do when you're making a book and you're trying to edit it, what is, what's the last thing you want to have happen in your mouth? That's really important to me. And that word returns is awesome because it's going back, but it's also going forward through going back and it's playing with time and it's all this expansiveness. And it says like the ghost might be gone, but, 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 but with the ghost being gone, the, the, boat, the ghost is returning somewhere else. And also the ghost can't come back to you. Like it's all of it at all at the same time. And I think when you hit upon those moments that are super expansive and full and it feels good in your mouth, that's how I end. How did you come up with the last like sentence of your book? Um, so without trying to, without spoiling it, yeah. it's, not, it's yeah. not that it's, it's not plot driven. So I'm not, you know, spoiling event wise, but I was very intentional about not wanting this to be a redemption narrative. Right. And so I think it could be read on in, in a way. Right. But what I was really thinking, and it's, and it's related to your ending, it, it ha- actually has much more to do with an arrival back to self, right? But the arrival back to the self is not a full circle, right? Like a lot of stuff has to have happened in order to be able to return. And that's kind of how I was reading your return also, to return back to a self, but that self is not the same. Exactly, self. exactly. Thank you, this is so fun. It was so great to have a chance to read and to talk today. Thank you both so much for such a generous and a generous conversation that took place in 
such a warm liminal space. I I told you I wanted to live inside it. I wish I, I could have listened to such a long form conversation from the two of you. Um, it was such a pleasure being able to experience that with you today. Thank you so much. Uh, for our listeners, again, our guests today were Janice Lee and Gabrielle Seville. And we were so happy to have them on the Skylight Books podcast. You can order your very own copies of Imagine a Death and Ghost Gestures from Skylight Books at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.